it is true that mothers hid their dad in order to pretend there was no dad in order to get money. And they told their children to lie and say, I don't see my dad, even if their dad was in the closet or under the bed. Can you imagine what that would do to a child that you're forced to lie to an official when you're eight years old? My guest today is Amity Schles. Amity is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, Coolidge, The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive Americans Crazy, and her latest book, The Great Society, A New History. She also chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and the Manhattan Institute's Hayek Book Prize. And she also serves as a scholar at the King's College. I recently sat down with Amity and talked about how the history of good intentions, government overreach, and terrible results offers lessons for both policymakers and voters today. Amity, thank you so much for appearing on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so your latest book, before we even get into it, I just want to hold this up and show, it's The Great Society, uh, A New History. I'm going to talk why it's really new, but then again, you know, it's really not that new because as you put in the beginning, nothing was really new here. We just keep forgetting what we did in the past. So uh, I want to get into the first thing, Amity. Why did you write this book? Why did you feel compelled that you need to write a book about The Great Society? Well, thank you, Charles. The logical answer is I write about the progressive movement and there are waves of progressivism in the history of the United States. So early wave, say the 1910s, another wave, the New Deal. Um, and the next great wave was the Great Society, which built on the New Deal um, and the first progressive push, which was, um, for example, Theodore Roosevelt or William Howard Taft. So each wave gets a snapshot. That's my book. But another reason I wrote this book, The Great Society, The Great Society is the logo, the mantra of Lyndon Johnson in the 60s is that it is the story of my parents. Because my parents were um, sentient people, thoughtful people, business leaders, community leaders, who, who didn't just read about the Great Society, they actually lived it in real time. And what they experienced, what our family experienced, we lived on the south side of Chicago, um, where there was plenty of Great Society, impulse to help poor people, uh, impulse to improve the world for all. And what the result was, I saw that, I was a child, but I saw it and I thought, well, I'll revisit this and figure out what happened. Okay. so. I'll cut to the chase because for those of you who um, are going to read the book, we know the ending. Uh, it doesn't work. Why doesn't a war on poverty, which sounds so great, of throwing zillions of dollars of government money at a problem, creating a whole bunch of entitlements for a whole bunch of people, why does it fail? Because people have souls and they most decisions people make are about themselves. And if a person wants to move um, economically, say, to put it flatly, up into the working class or the middle class, most of that impulse comes from him, even today. It doesn't come from government. Certain moments may be helped by government. For example, after the war, um, or say World War, World War II, or more recently, 
when a man left the army, he might get help with college, even if he wasn't an officer, the GI Bill. That definitely helped. Or a man might get help or a woman with a mortgage, something related to being a veteran. Or a woman might get help if she attended a community college where the cost was zero and therefore learn a trade and therefore be able to earn her own money. But helping others to become something all the way, which is what the Great Society did, it, it called itself opportunity, but it was more like permanent help, um, doesn't work because um, if people want something, usually they want to do it themselves. If they don't really want it, then, then a world of help doesn't help them and sometimes even makes them more, more um, you know, lose their own desire to advance. Um, you know, once I was speaking to a bunch of high schoolers um, in Arizona, and I was speaking about the expansion of food stamps in the Great Society of the 60s, and under both President Johnson and really under President Nixon, the Great Society was a bipartisan story. It was not just the Democrats did it, Republicans did it in some ways even more. That is the expansion in spending. And I was um, saying something about food stamps and a high schooler got up and said, you're shaming me. I'm on food stamps. How dare you shame someone who comes to want? Well, none of us wants to shame anyone who comes to want. It, it, at all times, unexpectedly, people come to want. They do. And it's not always their fault. But we can agree that it is a shame if one expects not only oneself, but also one's child and grandchild to be on food stamps. That's a shame. The most left-wing person in the world would think that's a shame because the human ideal is to take care of your family and yourself, self-reliance. And that goes across parties. So, so what it turned out, um, just to be specific about the Great Society, um, before the 60s, the government decided by and large, whether state, local, or federal, when someone deserved a federal benefit. And there was a lot of discretion in that, and that discretion was ugly. Think of the social workers who liked one family and not another. In the 60s, though, and in this period I cover going into the 70s, there was a Supreme Court case called Goldberg v. Kelly, which basically said maybe welfare is like property. You're entitled to it. Hence this big concept, entitlement. It's your right. That was a shift. And when you make um, aid from whatever source, but particularly government, a right, you change the mindset, the human mindset. Right. Okay, let me let me just jump in for a second. So before FDR and the great and then the New Deal, which in your other book, which I really enjoyed, uh, The Forgotten Man, where you show that FDR's policies, his New Deal really didn't help the depression. In fact, uh, it really prolonged it. But before we can talk about that, my grandparents came to this country on my mother's side in 1922. And during the Depression, they were going to be kicked out of their apartment because my grandfather wasn't, didn't have enough money, wasn't working. And my grandmother worked as a superintendent of the building, scrubbing down. She used to scrub down the halls on her knees and in order to pay the rent. She said at that time, there was no government aid at all. And thank God for FDR because he had all these great things that helped us get through. Now, 
You have a different take on that. Maybe she, she didn't remember much of what really happened at the point, but what? how does one approach that and say, look, you need government to help people at certain times? Well, if government help did <laughs> help people at certain times, that would be all right. The New Deal programs that your grandfather might have been in, which were temporary work programs, for example, that's all right. I mean, the, sometimes we need them. Sometimes they're lifesavers. This winter, there will be wood for houses that burn wood. Wonderful when your house burns wood and you need it. But um, I don't know quite why the godsend idea of FDR became a sort of American bedrock memory. FDR was a pretty good war president. He was a fantastic Navy president. This is the man who knew the East Coast, every crack and cranny. He could sail the battleships himself if necessary. His expertise was international, but he was a pretty poor economist. Why does that matter to our story? Because in the Great Depression, notwithstanding this New Deal for Americans, unemployment was over 10% or 15% for a whole decade. So your grandmother enjoyed the magnanimity of Franklin Roosevelt, but he did not help the worker enough. He's, the New Deal failed to deliver what every other decade in American history has delivered, which is lower unemployment. So what was it about the New Deal that made it fail? Was it fail? Was it that the depression was so special and different like something out of the Wizard of Oz or Hurricane, not really so. There was a, a remarkable deflation at the beginning of the decade that caused unemployment. We'd had shock unemployment like that before, but it's pretty hard to find evidence for some remarkable circumstance that kept unemployment over 10%, 1935, 1936, 1937, 1938. Why? GDP grew over a tiny base, but did not return to the level of 29 until the very end of the 30s. Why? And one answer I discovered in my research, um, which uh, I am very lucky economists have often come to me about this because I put kind of a narrative to their data points, uh, these troubling data points of the abiding unemployment of the 1930s tragic was that wages were too high. Why were wages high? If you look at a chart I'm not going to put a chart on your show, but if you look at the chart of the wages, the real wage in the 1930s, what you'll see is the wage is above trend for the, for the century. How can the wage be above trend in a decade with over 10% unemployment? You know why? Centerpiece of the New Deal, the New Deal law made it a rule that wages be high. You must pay higher. That was called the Wagner Act. It was also in other New Deal laws, such as the National Labor Relations Act or the Minimum Wage Act. Um, there was an Overtime Act specifically. The government ordered wages be high. So what do you do if you're an employer and you're in recession, you don't have a lot of revenue, orders are still down, and you can't uh, pay a lot of people. And the government says, the law says, the Wagner Act says, you must pay high, white, high wages you hire back more slowly. Right. Well, you find, or you, that or, or, was or, the tragedy of the New Deal. Right. People were unemployed for five years. Right. Or you fire people. people. Or you fire people. You have five people. You have to pay a certain wage. Just get rid of two or three. They, 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 they laid off and they didn't rehire. 
And why is that? Well, they wanted to follow the law. They didn't want to get in trouble. The administration was for the Wagner Act. The Congress was for the Wagner Act. The policemen were for the Wagner Act. Everybody was going to be hard on you if you didn't pay high. It was a, an economic folly. It was like saying, vent, I mean, it's, it's a little unfair to use that analogy, but let's say it was like using a drug in the COVID period that everyone knows is discredited or isn't. Everyone knew that a law making wages high in an economically weak period when revenues are slow for employers was a bad idea, but nobody dared say it. Okay, so stop one second. So stop one second. Yeah. So you have. So it's a bit like that. Okay. So that was the period. Okay, so you have intelligent people who went to the right schools. Many of them grew up with wealth. Many of them ran businesses and big businesses back in those days. Why? Does government, why do people, when they get into government, why do they screw it up thinking that they can save everybody by just writing checks with 10 digits? Well, that in that period, it was more forcing employers to write checks with 10 digits. So then rich employers were framed. Just on the one example I'm giving, which is the real failure of the New Deal, it was for the working men. Remember, President Biden said, put people back to work. That was the New Deal, too. And it didn't help the working men. It created a forgotten man. Why is that? I think it's all vanity, Charles. Um, we want to do good. We're clever. We want to do good, therefore, we want to scale our good. We don't want to just go to church on Sunday and help three poor people by serving them soup or giving one small business loan around the corner. We want to help the whole country, and our IQ suggests we might be qualified to do that. Well, that's the folly of knowledge, right? You often can't know what people locally know better. In a town or in a community, people know what they need. The school might need a gym. If you send it for Spanish teachers and there's not much interest in Spanish, it's the wrong gift, even though the school's budget is up, right? The school might need Spanish teachers and you send it to gym, wrong gift. Who knows whether the school needs a gym or a car park or for Spanish teachers, only the school. Okay, so so, so, and that, so that's another factor. The New Deal is very far away. And at that time, such national efforts from Washington were new thing. Now we're accustomed to that. Washington guessing what some locale needs. Right, okay, okay, I gotcha. And you're right, you know, you're not right. I, I totally agree with you because it was on the local level, it was the synagogues, the churches, the Kiwanis Club, the Rotary Club that used to help the local community. They knew who needed help and they knew how to uh, effectively help them without filling out, without bureaucracies, without the federal government. Totally with you. Now, during this New Deal, there's this one. But you might want to stick to your grandmother for one sec. Mm -hmm. Because I think Jews liked Roosevelt. No, like they, they, he was, he was, he right. was considered. They, they thought he was Jewish. Well, the Republicans. So why is that? The Republicans led a Democrat join, but it was the Republicans who led very restrictive immigration law, which changed immigration from the twenties. Right. So your grandparents got in just at the time, and immigration, particularly from East and Southern Europe, became tougher. I don't know about the Middle East, but I do know about East and Southern Europe. Well, the Republicans were blamed for that, and they probably should have been. Democrats joined them, but still. And Roosevelt didn't change that law. 
Um, but he, uh, but it, when it came to World War II, um, he engaged. Uh, he sided against the Germans. The Germans were awful to Jews. I'm Jewish as well. So, I mean, so I, what I, my point being, our look back is colored uh, by our presentism. What do I mean by that? My grandmother was a very wise person, but eventually she, she became old and she said, I really love Roosevelt. And I said, why do you love Roosevelt? And she said, he was so good on television. <laughs> she meant radio, but her memory had shifted a bit. Right. Uh, 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 so I think the war, the memory of the war, the, the justness of the cause of World War II colored people's analysis of the depression preceding no, no, that's the point def, thank def, you for def, indulging me def, no, definitely got that definitely got that because there's such a bias because roosevelt in his time i think you even mentioned that in um in 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 that book that even during his time it wasn't such a new deal wasn't so great he was a great military or or commander-in-chief but uh, economic wise it wasn't that great and it took 20 to 30 years for people to forget Admiral in chief. Well, yeah, you have to forget, right? What what President Biden seeks, um, but I also want to talk about the Schechter case, if you permit me. But what, what President Biden seeks um is to replicate something closer to the great society or extend right, it. Right. But there's enough memory of that great society and its failings, which it did fail. We spent a lot of money and the poverty numbers didn't really change. And we went absolutely the wrong direction um, in terms of, uh, I think, uh, minorities, partic particularly African-Americans, you know, what we told them about what was important. We, we changed our culture. A lot of people remember the failures of the great society. So President Biden doesn't always say, I want to be just like Lyndon Johnson. He says, I want to be like Roosevelt because Roosevelt is so far back. He looks all rosy. He's nostalgic. Right, right. Nostalgia's right. figure. It, it, people do forget and they remember selectively. Okay. Totally. I 100% agree with you. Let me just get back to the New Deal during this time period. And then come, then come into your book, The Great Cider, which is real, what I really liked about this book. I loved your charts and graphs in the back. And I love the way oh, you, had, thank you had each chapter where you had guns and butter, entitlements and defense. And you could see that start to shift. But hold on to that for just one second. So during this New Deal, there's this young six foot three and a half congressman who makes his way to be Roosevelt's protege. He just is so popular in his district. Everyone loves this guy. If you want to get anything done, you go to this guy, Lyndon B. Johnson. And Johnson takes all the lessons from this. And when he becomes president, he has this way of, I'm just continuing on with FDR did. Is that more or less right? Yeah, or what Truman did, because... Truman faced resistance, right? After World War II, the president was Harry Truman. Truman faced resistance um, to, you know, big healthcare projects, um, you know, versions of Medicare, versions of Medicaid. He, he faced resistance. He faced resistance on labor law when he defended Roosevelt's labor law, the labor law to which I referred, which sustained and deepened the unemployment of the 1930s. So, Johnson wanted to finish what Roosevelt and Truman started. Okay. And he was a very young man. 
Roosevelt was nice to him. The New Deal, uh, he worked in the New Deal. He caught the excitement and he led with his heart. I mean, we, we were uh, talking about this last night. How do we get the immigration law that we have? It leads with the heart, right? If families must be reunified because we love our families. Who can resist families? So, so Johnson was a, a political man, Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Texas congressman who led with his heart and who thought a big heart at home could easily translate into a big heart in government. What works in the House, what work, works in the Senate, and works in the national government. I mean, what works in the little house in Texas, works in the big house in Washington, the Congress, works in the Senate and works in the national government. He just thought that worked just great and you could take what you did at home and translate it big. Uh, that was Johnson and was bitterly disappointed when it didn't work, kind of went into uh, worse than a pout, a funk, a depression. Um, when the strength of his, you know, the absolute scale of his effort was not appreciated by the American people. Okay, I want to talk about two things about the Great Society in Johnson, and both things you you really described very well in your book. The first is housing. Uh, the government thinks the federal government thinks it's a much better idea to raise these poor neighborhoods, which had community, which had churches which had people living close together and taking care of each other, raise them, and the best solution to this is we build these huge Soviet-style projects that failed miserably. Why do they think they can solve these problems? That's what I just want. I'm not getting it, Amity. What makes it's kind of It's kind of, you know, it's the logical part of the brain, um, uh, 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 working oddly, because there's a great attraction of the concept of the economy of scale, right? If I can do 10, I've got to scale and do a thousand. Human nature isn't that way. So the most logical mind in the world is actually ignoring data sets when that mind tells itself I can go to 10,000 from 10. Sometimes you can't. Um, and what makes 10 work and 10,000 not? So, so it's a, a kind of set of logical impulses that don't necessarily add up to logic. Uh, why um, in the book, I, I focus on one housing project just to tell a story, which is called Pruitt Igo. It was it, in St. Louis. Right, right, yeah. Um, and St. Louis is a wonderful town with an enormously strong tradition, kind of Tocqueville wise of town fathers. Federal government comes along and says, we'll subsidize you for urban renewal and for raising ghettos, for the bulldozers, the federal bulldozer and St. Louis fathers say, we like to control our town, but okay, we'll take that money because we don't have to raise levy taxes if we raise R-A-Z-E, this street. And it's supposed to be better and no one knows, right? So much of St. Louis was raised R-A-Z-E-D because of perverse, I would say federal incentives build something new, economy of scale, build these giant housing projects. I believe, 
I can't remember how many there were, but there were dozens at Pruitt Igo. Um, and there are pictures of them. And there was so much ambition about these housing projects, how they were better for poor people than anything they might have had before. They had running water, they had new appliances, they had elevators, they had breezeways outside between the apartments so the mothers could take their stroller out and sit together on their floor. There were courtyards, um, just with all the love in the world, the architect, whose name is Yamasaki, crafted this. Federal government comes in, says, we're funding this. You have to cut here and there. Result was compromised with some of these features, didn't all make sense. And the other premise was, if the federal government builds it and gives it to the St. Louis Housing Authority, well, it'll be profitable because St. Louis always grows and workers will live there, right? St. Louis failed to grow. It, it meet me in St. Louis was over. Right, the whole um, tremendous, uh, just amazing growth before World War II did not continue at the same pace after World War II. And so if you premise a project on full capacity, everyone living in every apartment and no vacancy, maybe Prudigo would have worked. We, one was named after a, 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 a black hero, um, and another was named after a congressman. Uh, so it, it didn't work. There was never full capacity and people couldn't pay rent because the growth in St. Louis wasn't there. The jobs weren't there. So a whole um, scheme to build a, a mini city, Pruitt-Igoe went wrong. When you have vacancy, you have truant, you have- oh, wait, you have I'm, I'm before you even go into that, uh, you touch on the, in the book really well how you had this sense of community where people uh, felt connected. And that is totally, the, the local church is there, the people have their social clubs, mothers could watch their kids play, even though they were poor. Uh, they was a, there's a sense of community. Hey, look, in New York, Robert Caro uh, did the same thing. He just raised parts of New York to put the throughways and the Bronx, the, um, uh, Cross Island Expressway and just raised areas down and destroyed neighborhoods in the Bronx in order to build this for the greater good. So when they start doing this and they see it doesn't work, what at what point do they say, we're wrong, let's not replicate this? Almost never. Yeah, why is they that? Say why, why that, is that? They say, we're wrong, let's edit this. Is what they say. So, 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 why, so why, is there, why is there so many iterations? Because first of all, it's hard to get out of the, you know, in communism, we always used to say it's easy to make fish soup out of an aquarium, but almost impossible to make an aquarium from fish soup. They really cut up and destroyed these neighborhoods. So there was no going back as the people were going to go away. I think if you were waving a magic wand, what you would say is, and, and uh, I actually believe this is true, if, if uh, Missouri had been economically more competitive, uh, remained competitive in terms of taxation and labor law, Missouri was not a right to work state. It was a heavy labor state. More factories would have sprung up around Pruitt-Igo and the people in Pruitt-Igo would have paid their rent and would have moved out. That's nice. Um, even African-Americans, that it was not, that is, it, it, even groups we think that, 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 well, they maybe they'll never come out of poverty. They would have, but the growth stayed away because Missouri was not friendly enough to heavy industry anymore. 
Okay, so now, um, so, so now you have and a, that you have a, that was a big factor, and the families never recovered from being rudely transplanted from a subpar housing to to quote unquote heavenly uh, apartments, um, which quickly became unheavenly. Right. They just didn't work out. Uh, the vacancy really did lead to vandalism and crime. So no matter how heavenly an apartment seems, if the hall outside it is dangerous and you will be mugged there and your children will meet children, take your children the wrong way, you don't want to live there. Right, right, right. right. Okay. Yeah, and that's what happened. Okay. So now, by the way, end, end of the story is a cut to the chase is what happens to this whole area. Right at the end of the day, they blow it up. <laughs> it, right. The last sentence of this book, the first sentence of The Great Society is nothing is new. It is just forgotten. Mm -hmm. And the last sentence, the very sad is, and then they blew it all to bits. Because what happened to Pruitt-Igoe, and it happened to many housing projects across the nation, um, was the town fathers decided the only thing they could do was just take it down. It was a health danger. Um, and that, that was, know, by the way, that was one in 72 or so that happens. It was, um, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. That's what I'm thinking. But it, it was, it was after the sixth, it, it, over, it, it was into the seventies. There were several stages. I mean, figures we know, the father of Mitt Romney, George Romney was housing secretary and he thought, how can we say this? So he, it, again, the mind is always playing with this, with this idea of improvement. Well, how can we say this? We've kind of learned in the intervening period, i.e. the 60s, it's super tall buildings. These were tall buildings, Pruitt, I go, don't work. So um, maybe we'll knock off the top half of these buildings and then there'll be low rise. And we've heard that low rise is, is much easier for people and that they prefer it and that they congregate in low rise. So the most absurd ideas were considered and they, um, Romney uh, as housing secretary at that time, the father met was confused. He wanted to look like a hero, um, but every idea he tried didn't work. So in the end, the town fathers came along and with the federal government and and just blew Pruitt-Ivo to rubble. Right. So it lasts less than a decade, and it's history and a failed. Uh, more than a decade, but not not. Um, I, I I'm sorry, I don't have the years right here. Okay, I'm looking but here. I, I think in, it was 1972. The pilot demolition continued. So they started. You have in the book about 1972. Right. It was it was first built in the 50s. Um, and people lived in Pruitt-Igo in the 50s. Uh, and that's getting at a point that's important to our listener, Charles. It's that the Great Society didn't start all of it in the, in the Great Society. Some of it started in the 50s, particularly urban renewal, which um, the more I know about it, the more I dislike it, the vanity of it. Yeah, okay. So I, I want to, before we go, I just definitely want to touch on this is really the law of unintended consequences. Because we had Colonel um, um, Colonel Allen West on the show, and he said the biggest thing about the Great Society was the destruction of the African-American family. He said back then it was close to 60 or 70% uh, father and mother in the house, and today it's down to 27 or 25%. I don't remember the exact number. And he specifically talked about welfare and fathers hiding in closets when inspectors came to see if fathers were living at home. Could you just touch on that and the folly of 
government uh, Absolutely. That, that's not just the Great Society. In fact, the Great Society at times sought to rectify that problem. What it was was social workers, which would be, for example, a Peridor, I call Missouri social workers, making a decision. We're going to give money to families where there's no dad. We're not going to give money to families where there is a dad because then the dad won't feel he needs to go to work. This was a time when dads worked, less mom. And so in order to live in Pruitt-Igo and get, um, say, um, housing benefits, you know, for that, or um, to get payments for your children, aid for families with dependent children, you had to prove there was no dad. And it is true. And I, I really recommend a movie, uh, The Myth of Pruitt-Igo. Um, it is true that mothers hid their dad in order to pretend there was no dad in order to get money. And they told their children to lie and say, I don't see my dad, even if their dad was in the closet or under the bed. Can you imagine what that would do to a child that you're forced to lie to an official when you're eight years old? Um, so that was our policy. Wait, wait, and, 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 and by the way, the, 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 the unintended circumstance would be, yeah, they have to lie, put that aside for a second. If they didn't do that, they would be thrown out of their apartments. In many cases, right. in the they, they the, right. so so the incentive was to be deceitful and to put that in the closet and make sure he doesn't come out till the the social worker is gone. Right. So you have stories like that, and they were really true um, because of state authorities, because of town authorities. Um, the federal government tried to change that. Um, you know, money for workers. Uh, that, that the figure Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who's from New York, was involved yep. in that, but. Basically, you can't just tweak it. If you give a whole family which has a dead money, even though it has a dead, sometimes that dad does not want to go to work or that mom. I mean, we see that right now um, in the kind of little bit of confusion about returning to work subsequent to COVID with essentially what are welfare payments, COVID payments, right? Uh, well, people evaluate the trade-offs and they, well, I could stay home for three more months I have reason to do so. I want to finish the basement. I want to raise my child. Uh, great projects, but but work becomes relatively less attractive when there are payments, incentives uh, for staying home. So all that was going on as well. And I think Moynihan is very interesting because he was a tweaker. He, at every stage, acknowledged the failures. For example, with the early welfare, he said, we're feeding the horses to feed the sparrows. That is a large share of the money is going to social workers, horses, and the actual people who need the money, people who are in need, who have, uh, people of slender means, sparrows are getting a small share of it. Feeding the horses to feed the sparrows, yet he was unable to come up with a program to fix it all uh, as well. So come to, come to today with President Biden, why does he think he could fix all these problems that all you have to do is just read what happened in history and just not just avoid it? Well, what you do is you start in politics and you say how I mean, and he is not the only one who does this. All politicians do it. How do I win the election? And you win elections what by giving new benefits, incremental increase. So you can't just give what was already there. You have to incrementally increase. So it builds, as they say, like a coastal shelf, right? Builds mm -hmm. and builds. 
And every politician has to give more than predecessors in order to win the next election. Is it logical? No. Is it good? Why will it stop? It will stop because the US will have an economic problem and will suddenly have high interest rates and high inflation rates. And in order to reduce those, the government will have to spend less. Um, and people will say, wait a minute, the inflation and the interest rates have, have killed my job. I want my job. Therefore, the government must spend less. But that experience hasn't happened yet. You know, I think one sol a simple solution is that a president has to live anonymously on a regular street in a regular middle class house for a month to really get the feel of what's going on in the country. Because in their Oval Office, they kind of detach from the American population because these, a lot of these people are smart people. Many of them are good and, and, they, and they mean well, but it just doesn't end well. No, it, well, it, it doesn't. And um, it, how do we figure out um, how, how to change it? Well, one thing is we won't have to. There'll be some exogenous event that comes upon us. Uh, and we'll need to save money, including the government. But another is we educate our kids. So, you know, that is the main thing I do with the Coolidge Foundation, where I'm chairman, is we try to be sure young people know there is another way, principally through the life of Calvin Coolidge, who's, who's the library is in an image behind me. Coolidge always saved money for the government because he wanted Americans to pay less taxes. How do you go about doing that with kids? What do you do? Go into schools? Uh, well, one thing we have, a, we have a, a merit scholarship, which is very popular. It's a full ride to any college. So it's a, a, an expensive endeavor. Uh, and it honors academic merit. And this year we had 4,700 candidates for five scholarships. What uh, do those candidates do? Well, they write essays about Calvin Coolidge. That's the competition. So they have to familiarize themselves with Coolidge in order to be um, in the running for a scholarship. And then we have programs uh, for the, you know, the top 100, hopefully one day the top 500, where they learn about economics with us. And I believe young people are very skeptical. Um, they, they know they're being fed a monoline in school and they resent it. I mean, mutiny is the de facto mode for high schoolers, particularly boys. And uh, their mutiny is that they don't like receiving only one line on how the world works. Oh, 100%. So we want to be sure they hear something else and then they can make up their own mind as young adults. Wow, outstanding. And also, congratulations. Uh, the other day, you won the Bradley Prize. Tell me about that in just a few simple lines because it's a pretty important prize. Oh, it's a big honor. Um, it's from the Bradley Foundation, which is based off Alan Bradley. So it comes a company. So it comes out of the world of business and the world of the Midwest. Um, and the Bradley Prize is for contributions to concepts like markets and economic freedom. And because of these books, um, I had the honor of being a winner. Um, uh, and that's rare because there, are, frankly, aren't a lot of ways to honor uh, conservatives. Um, and so I was especially grateful and I'm grateful to the Bradley Foundation for understanding um, the Bradley Foundation does, isn't particularly a spin foundation. It's a very slow moving foundation and looks at projects that take years or even decades. And there are very few institutions that honor at that end. So thank you, Bradley Foundation, 
for being um, so appreciative of the value hunt uh, rather than the growth front. Beautiful, beautiful. Folks, the name of the book is Great Society, A New History by Amity Schles. Really good book. I like I like the graphs in the back. You like the cover? I, first of all, what are they looking at? Where does, you know, I looked all over for where this cover was. Let me just. Where is that cover, wait, right? The, okay. In the back, there, um, there are beautiful graphs. Wait, hang, which hang, I hang didn't... on one second, hang on one second. I, I want to describe for 99% oh, of okay. our people who want a podcast who listen and not watch it on YouTube. So we put on YouTube, folks, just basically so uh, people could see we really have a studio. Other than that, there's no other reason. All podcasts are listened to uh, on, on um, audio. So um, the book here shows a picture from a 1960-era picture of a whole bunch of people standing on a corner or something looking into, like, looks like something's happening down the block. So what is this picture and why did you select this for the front of your book? Well, for one reason, um, the picture has all kinds of Americans. There's ladies with babies, there's clergymen, right? Oh, true, true, true. So I'm looking here, I'm looking at, I'm looking at ladies with hats. I'm looking with African-Americans, looking at a priest. I'm looking at a mother holding a baby. Um, looking at, it looks like a long line. It looks like they're on some type of and line. It's a long line yeah. and they're very inquiring and, you know, everyone dressed pretty well in those days. So that's interesting too. That picture is not a welfare line though. It could be, they look a little worried and they look very interested. It's almost as though they're looking at, you think they're looking at a train schedule in the train station, maybe trying to figure out which is their train or their gate or something. Well, it looks right? like the train's their late. Track. It looks like the train's late because they look, look, the a little, late, they right? look a little anxiety and ridden here. They, a you know. little bit of anxiety and so much seriousness. What that photo is from is when the Mona Lisa painting came to America. They went to the art museum to look at the Mona Lisa, which isn't quite what you expect. They're not relaxed. They, it, everyone wanted to see the Mona Lisa. So it was packed and they were probably hurried along. But they are looking with a kind of concern that is very serious. That's what it is. It was by a French photographer. And nobody, I, I mean, when I saw the picture, the, the publisher, Harper Collins, didn't say, and this is the Mona Lisa shoot. Um, I, but I, I like the look of concern mixed with interest in the people's faces. I said, this is perfect for the Great Society. They're watching the Great Society. Um, they're not sure about it, but they're intensely interested. Nice. Oh, wow. See, I, I, you know, and I, I, do you have that anywhere here? Because I was looking. Uh, I'm not sure. No, I, I, I looked for it. I tried because I was trying to see what are these people doing? And... That's 1963. And Jackie Kennedy was involved. Uh, and um, but the data points you like, I want to give some credit to Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, retired, who helped me to put that data together and who uh, whose office looked at it, which is important to me. Um, the data point we chose nowadays, you know, we wonder, we say defense spending costs so much, but it's really um, entitlements that cost so much. And when did entitlements come to cost more than, than defense? When did butter come to cost more than guns? Well, in the period of this book, which is why I use that data set. Nice, nice, but really great book. And for those of you who like history, phenomenal. Those of you who like economics, even better. Amity puts it all together, and that's why I really enjoyed The Forgotten Man. I have not read Coolidge yet, but I will. That's definitely on my reading list. Nice big book, and great picture of him on the cover. He looks so happy. Um, 
Amity, thank you so much. This has been really great. And and by the way, where could people find out about the uh, Coolidge Foundation, especially about um, these scholarships? Coolidgefoundation.org. We also have debate programs okay. and we have declamation programs, which is that is kids give Coolidge speeches and they can win prizes for that, which I like very much. Wow. Um, so if you have a kid who's a big mouth and doesn't do too well in school, but you think he's kind of neat, this is a way for that kid to shine. And we all have one of those. All right. So, um, because, you know, school is not for everyone. Uh, yeah. And I yeah. really like to see those declaimers uh, channel Calvin Coolidge. He was a good speaker, notwithstanding his reputation as silent Cal, and argue um, Coolidge's beautiful arguments. By the way, Coolidge was a beautiful writer. So uh, a shocker. I, um, and uh, if you if you haven't met him, he had short sentences. He gave a great sermon. He, he's homiletic, even though of course he's not being a clergyman, but rather a politician. And I I came to love the way he wrote. He wrote with an acute consciousness of the English language. So if you are an English teacher, you will like Coolidge. All right, and there's uh, what that book's five hundred or so pages of. Uh of your writings. On That's all right. He's a president. Unfortunately, when you're writing presidential biography, you have to do that because when the president costs, it goes in there. But I think there's some important themes. Thank you, Charles, for this opportunity. Oh, great. Lots of luck to you and continued great, great success. Thank you so much, Amity. Okay, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, We'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.